I'm Joshua Kagi from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 24 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. On this episode, Jessica Young-Brown, an assistant professor of counseling and practical theology at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University, and author of the new book, Making Space at the Well, Mental Health and the Church, and Jermaine Alberti, Executive Director of Pathways to Promise, join Christian Citizen Editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas for a conversation on faith and mental health. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Jessica Young-Brown. I'm happy to welcome to Justice, Mercy, Faith, Jessica Young-Brown. Jessica is Assistant Professor of Counseling and Practical Theology at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of Theology at Virginia Union University, and a licensed clinical psychologist in private practice who provides education and consultation to churches and community organizations on mental health issues. Our conversation today will focus on her recent article for the Christian Citizen, Ministry for Mental Health in the Black Church, which is excerpted from her new book, Making Space at the Well, Mental Health and the Church published by Judson Press. Jessica, it's great to have you here today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Conversations about mental health in the church happen infrequently, if at all, and many of us believe mental health really isn't an issue for the church or that it isn't prevalent in our communities. And yet, on average, one in five Americans live with a mental health condition or will experience a mental health concern in any given year. Why do you think there is this disconnect in the church? Sure. So I think part of it is the way that we, um, many of us at least, have been taught to understand God and our faith. There's a... um, there's a saying in the black church, God is my all in all. And what it um, sort of conjures is this, the idea that God is a universal problem solver. And while we believe that, I think sometimes it can be hard to sit with what it means when I pray and things don't go away, right? And often with mental health concerns, we need some kind of intervention and we struggle with fitting that into our concept of who God is and what church is. I think there's also something that can take place in a variety of different religious traditions where people feel a pull to present themselves in certain ways in church to sort of clean up for church. And the reality is mental illness and mental health concerns get messy. And so sometimes people are afraid to make themselves vulnerable in that way and admit that this is something that they're struggling with, particularly if it feels like it's out of control or they don't know what their next steps are for how to get help. What is it about our language and culture that makes allowances for temporary lapses, as you call it in the article, in emotional wellness, but does not acknowledge the inherent vulnerability in our humanness. <laughs> yeah, I um, joke with my students all the time that we pick and choose which parts of Jesus we want to identify with. <laughs> and what I mean by that is 
we celebrate the divinity of Jesus. We celebrate Jesus on the cross who, you know, decided to sort of suspend his own will for the good of us. We don't always recognize that Jesus was also very in touch with himself as a human being, that Jesus wept when Lazarus died, that Jesus prayed to God right before the crucifixion, that, Lord, if you can take this cup from me, please do. And so I think in our quest to be like Christ, we lose our ability to honor that part of us, which is human. And my suggestion is that when we connect with all of Jesus, we actually have an invitation to be wholly human, that we don't have to be perfect all the time in order to be like Jesus. And we don't even have to have it all put together to be like Jesus. But the goal is really to give ourselves permission to be all of who we are. You note that this vulnerability makes us all susceptible to emotional struggles and Mm -hmm. makes necessary our connection um, with one another um, as part of the healing process. Um, These are particularly challenging times for people to connect with uh, stay-at-home orders and social distancing to mitigate the spread of the coronavirus. So the places that we normally gather, like churches, are largely closed and meeting online. What challenges uh, are you facing and what needs are you seeing in your own practice as a clinical psychologist? Sure. I think the isolation um, is definitely impacting all of us. Even, you know, we talk a lot about introverts and extroverts and that introverts sort of need less of that social connection. I think at this point, you know, six weeks or two months in, the introverts want some connection too, right? And so I've really just been challenging both myself and others to think about, while it's not the same as physical touch and there's really no substitute for that, I mean, there's a reason that we all hug and shake hands in churches, right? It's one of the ways that we show each other that we care, But I do think it's important for us to think about ways to have those surrogate connections. We can't connect in person, but we do need to be intentional about um, seeing and connecting with people that we're in relationship with. So whether that means, you know, one of the things we've done in my house is we've been intentional about logging on to our church service on Sunday morning at the time that we would normally be in church, right? And we're, you know, in our pajamas watching our TV. It's not the same as going to church. But at least I know that the people I'm connected with at church, we all got the same word this week. And then we can connect on that. You know, we've, we have a Zoom call scheduled with my son and some of his friends at preschool Friday so they can connect. And so I do think we have to be more intentional about it because we're used to those connections just kind of happening in the course of doing our lives. And now that isn't available to us. We're not going to run into people at the grocery store. We're not going to just happen to see someone at Bible study next week. And so we have to sit down and think about have I connected with people outside my home today? And if I haven't, who are the people I want to check in on? I think another way um, we can try to make those connections clear is, you know, social media can be kind of a double-edged sword sometimes, but in a season like this, it is a gift to be able to check on people pretty easily and with little effort. And so I think it's important for us to use the tools that are at our disposal that even if we can't be physically connected, we can still 
envision and re-envision what it means to be in community. And what we know about human beings is we absolutely need that connection to be okay. You talk in your book uh, quite a bit about the the image of the well. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's an important motif uh, in the book. What is the significance of the well as it applies to mental health ministry for you? Sure. So from my perspective, the well is the life-giving force. It is the thing that allows us to have what we need, that allows us to be healthy. And the well is a place of connection in a, in a real human sense. And part of the envisioning of that metaphor is that when we all do what we're called to do, the church can become that well. The church can become the place, not just where we can have social connections. Yes, those are important. But church is about more than social connection. It's about spiritual sustenance. And my belief also is that church is about healing of communities. And so that looks like food pantries and job fairs and and all the things that communities need to be okay. And for me, it's important that we as individual believers, as the executors of the church, don't set up inadvertent boundaries so that some people get the message that for some reason or another, they don't have access to the well. And the book is really about breaking down some of those boundaries and really examining our own ways of doing, ways of being, ways of relating so that we invite people to the well rather than accidentally sending the message that they don't belong. You talk at length in the book about the complicated history of the black church and the resilience of people of African descent. How has the black church contributed to that resilience? And in what ways has that very strength contributed to the difficulty of speaking openly about mental health concerns in the black church? Sure. So uh, one of the challenges historically of the black church is that most black churches in this country were kind of born in resistance, right? Um, Enslaved Africans didn't come to the United States Christian. (laughs) They came celebrating a wide variety of African traditions and Christianity during the time of slavery. And, you know, even in some ways into perpetuity was really used to remind enslaved Africans of their place, right? So the scriptures around slaves obey your masters were highlighted as a way to cajole people into following these um, guidelines that were really dehumanizing, right? And so Christianity was used as a tool of oppression, but as... um, a part of the resilience that we celebrate, right, is that enslaved Africans were able to turn Christianity into something that really represented freedom. And so from spirituals that were sung in fields to let people know when it was time to run, from highlighting Moses as a liberator, as a way to understand that God is on the side of the oppressed, right? All the way to present day liberation theology, which talks explicitly about God as being interested and invested in freeing people from oppression. The church became a place where Black folks could really mobilize 
to fight for and celebrate their own freedom. And so we see that during the civil rights era where churches were really the hub for civil rights activity. Lots of the civil rights leaders that we celebrate today were religious leaders in addition to being political leaders. And so this trend of using the church as a home base for a way to seek freedom has always been a part of what the Black church represents. Part of the contention I make in the book is that somewhere along the way, we became so focused on communal freedom that we, not on purpose, but by happenstance perhaps, downplayed or minimized what personal freedom looks and feels like. There's also the um, very real cultural reality, for instance, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and even 70s in the United States. The majority of jobs that Black folks could hold in this country were what we consider blue-collar jobs, working-class jobs, right? There were grown women who were working every day in homes where little kids were calling them by their first names, right? And so many Black folks in their work lives, there was still this constant mistreatment, racism, daily struggle. And so church became a solace from that. It became a place where we could put on our Sunday best, where we could put on a gold-plated pin, have a position of authority, be called Mr. or Mrs., and be shown some respect. And so collateral damage of that is a concern that I might not be able to hold this position of respect. And this is the only place that I can have it if I also admit that I'm having some internal or personal struggles that have become unmanageable for me. And so that um, dichotomy, I think for many of us became um, really difficult to manage. Then you couple that with the fact that we have a deep-seated and reality-based distrust of medical professions. And so some of the consequences for seeking help, whether that was in community or even to people who were trained to help us, in some ways became too great of a risk for many of us. You talk about the black church as a peculiar institution and Mm -hmm. that if we're to adequately address the mental health needs of those who are a part of the black church, we need a peculiar solution. Um, What does that peculiar solution look like for you? For me, the peculiar solution is understanding culture, that we can't um, talk about mental health in a vacuum. It's the same reason why when people seek mental health care, they want culturally competent therapists, right? You want someone who can really understand your experience and who can make it fit to how you live your life. And part of the struggle for me just in trying to provide these services to Black churches, because that's kind of the area where I specialize, is that a lot of the writing that has historically been done about mental health in the church doesn't adequately address the layers of stigma that we see in the Black church, right? Anybody who's a person of faith can talk about the stigma related to mental health from a faith-based perspective. But there's this added layer of what it means to be Black and a person of faith. There's the added layer of 
the structure of Black churches where leadership is really, really, really important. And so in a Black church, we have to start with the leaders because the leaders set the stage for what happens in a congregation. We have to think about multiple layers of influence because there are many different ways that people can be engaged in a congregation. And so my hope is that the book really gets people thinking about, yes, what does it mean to incorporate and respond to Black culture in the way we respond to mental health, but also thinking about the particular culture of any given church, right? Rural churches are very different from suburban churches, are very different from urban churches. And the message is there really isn't a one-size-fits-all solution, but there's a process where we can understand who we are as people and how that shapes the way we respond to each other. You wrote a uh, beautiful litany to affirm ministry for mental health that's included uh, as an appendix to the book. And we've published that as a bulletin insert for churches to use. And in that litany, you write, wise God, thank you for knowing and loving all of who we are. Help us to remember the gift of our personhood and to honor the personhood of others. Help us to make space for people to bring their full selves to the place of worship for healing and restoration. It's a real uh, conundrum, is it not, this reality that God knows the fullness of who we are, but the church is often a place where that fullness is not accepted or where there's an expectation that, as you mentioned earlier, we bring our best selves Mm -hmm. rather than our whole selves. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with us acknowledging that we are human ourselves. And this is particularly for those of us who are leaders in churches. Often I find that when we are in positions of authority, sometimes acknowledging all of our humanness, right, particularly mistakes or areas where we're struggling, feels like it's a threat to our leadership position. What we don't realize, and I'm talking about pastors, but not just pastors, I mean, really broad scopes leaders. What we don't realize is that because people are watching us and because we are leaders, when we then curate the presentation that we give to others, the message we send is you should also curate the presentation that you give to others. So it creates this vicious cycle of all of us following this rule that only the good parts are allowed, when in reality, a part of what I think we need to own is that if we're really going to be in relationship, if we're going to be in holy relationship and an intimate relationship, that means that things will get messy sometimes. But our commitment is to love each other through it. And it's not about avoiding conflict, because I think whenever we seek to avoid conflict, what we really seek is not to have good, healthy, meaningful relationships with people, right? It's not about avoiding conflict, but it's about a belief that if we have a conflict, we can know each other and love each other enough to figure out how to move through it so that everyone gets their needs met. And so I I think it is... Um, important for all of us to think about where we can take risks and just be a little vulnerable, 
and just say, you know, I really feel like I'm called to do this and I really enjoy this work. And there are times when this gets hard. There are times when I feel overwhelmed. And just those little pieces of information send a message to the people in our community. Oh, that's okay. It's okay to not have it together all the time. One of the things that I do intentionally when I do workshops is to tell people that I have a therapist and I'm actually a very private person. So it's not like I just really want everybody to know that I have a therapist, but I, it could be easy for me to present as someone who has it together all the time. Right. But I want to be intentional about dismantling that idea because the truth is nobody has it together all the time. And so if we can just venture to be imperfect people in relationship with other imperfect people, I think we open up the capacity of what we can be and what we can accomplish as the body of Christ. Further thoughts or final recommendations for our listeners? The, um, you know, the big message of this book is to be like Jesus. And what I mean by that is Jesus had this way of essentially just inviting everyone into the fold. You know, he was really clear about what his message was, but he was also really clear that everyone was allowed and people could show up however they needed to show up. Right. When people were hungry, he figured out how to feed them. When people needed healing, he figured out how to respond to those needs. When people were social outcasts, they were still allowed at the table with him. And that's really what the message is, that so much of the posturing that we do in churches, I think for the sake of looking a certain way, um, ultimately isn't helpful to us if we really want to fulfill the mission of Christ. And we can do much more if we make space for everybody to be there. Space at the well. Space at the well. (laughs) I want to thank you uh, for joining us today. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. And I want to encourage our listeners to read uh, Jessica's article, Ministry for Mental Health in the Black Church, which can be found at christiancitizen.us. And at the close of that article, you'll find a link to download the Litany to Affirm Ministry for Mental Health, something you might consider using in May, which is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month in your church. And her book, Making Space to the Well, Mental Health and the Church, published by Judson Press, is available in paperback and ebook formats and it is an excellent primer and practical resource for churches interested in starting or expanding a mental health ministry thank you thank you very much Reverend Germaine Alberti is the Executive Director of Pathways to Promise and a National Trainer of Mental Health First Aid. It is my pleasure to welcome him to this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Welcome, Germaine. Thank you. It's good to be here. Tell us a little bit about uh, Pathways to Promise, the, the mission of the organization um, and, uh, and what it does. Well, Pathways of Promise has been around um, for over 30 years and initially was designed to provide support to denominations to support families and persons with mental illness. Um, And one of the key elements that 
was used to do that was things like bulletin inserts, sermon starters, websites, so forth. Um, and since my time with Pathways, uh, it has been now going on four years. We have now gone to a more direct service model where we're providing training to congregations as well as other organizations. And the whole goal is to create welcoming, inclusive, supportive, and engaged uh, congregations uh, to support persons who may be experiencing mental health or substance use challenges and other challenges in life. And so uh, we, I, I consider us a organization that can come alongside uh, faith communities and support them uh, through education. What are some of the ways that uh, churches and other uh, communities of faith can participate in the mission of Pathways? Well, um, you know, we are always happy to come and provide assessments to actually assess the need because sometimes people have a great ideal and they'll say, you know, we need to do some kind of support group or we need some kind of mental health ministry. And it's just their, it's just their ideal. Um, And they, don't have the support because they haven't done the assessment that it requires to find out what the actual perception of mental illness is in their congregation. And so some folks may not respond because of stigma. And so when we start asking those questions that drill down into person's perceptions about mental illness or substance use disorders, uh, that assessment part is the beginning process of how we then begin to educate the congregation to how to provide that support to the person. Um, and then what we do is, is we teach them from now you're educated, how you implement what you've learned and through implementation, then how you sustain that model. So, you know, I, the best way to support pathways uh, and come alongside us is to just say, hey, we need your help. And then together we can work together. Uh, and of course, we we'll always need funding to help support that work. So financial support is always helpful in doing that work. Um, but we have a great board of directors that also has come alongside and helped us uh, grow as an organization. Tell me a little bit about uh, mental health first aid and how does that connect, connect with uh, your ministry with Pathways to Promise? So I am considered by many a dinosaur in the mental health first aid movement because mental health first aid came to the U.S. in 2007, 2008, and I was one of the original national trainers of the program and it helped develop the adult curriculum, helped develop youth curriculum and several modules. Uh, and so um, I've been part of mental health first aid now for 12 years. Um, and it it has become part of Pathways to Promise because we have several persons on our board or affiliated with us who are instructors of mental health first aid. But what we've done with mental health first aid is we have connected mental health first aid and another training called companionship and use those to be anchor trainings to get congregations equipped to recognize signs and symptoms of mental illness and then how to respond in a non-crisis or crisis situation. Uh, but through companionship, then how do you walk alongside that person using your faith? So mental health first aid is not specifically uh, created per se uh, for faith communities in a sense where it's dealing with their theology, but it is providing those basic skills of how to uh, respond to somebody who may need um, your assistance. So companionship comes right alongside about how do we provide hospitality, how do we neighbor, how do we come side by side, how do we listen. And so companionship and mental health first day has been a great marriage for Pathways to Promise because the two really 
complement one another. And where mental health first aid is eight hours and companionship is four hours, people can choose which one they want to integrate and then the congregation first. So uh, I'm, I love mental health first aid <laughs> and companionship. <laughs> In your uh, recent article for the Christian Citizen, Five Steps to Create a Mental Health Ministry, you note the critical role that clergy can play in helping those with mental health concern get culturally appropriate mental health care. But it's also the case, isn't it, that pastors can be a barrier uh, to that happening. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what's happening in churches around, around mental health, mental illness? You know, I think so many times um, pastors have been um, unfortunately um, called upon to be more godlike than humanlike, um, and there's expectation that pastors, if they have grief or sadness, they should just go to God with that and that they, they themselves shouldn't be on medication for a mental health challenge or they themselves shouldn't see a therapist for mental health challenge. And so when you have that burden of trying to carry the weight of all your parishioners on your shoulders, um, sometimes in order to try to encourage them that you're okay, you say things like from the pulpit, all you need is Jesus, just pray about it. Just trust God with it, because that's what you're telling yourself to kind of help yourself through all that you are experiencing, all that you're going through. And so I think that as pastors, when we're able to recognize that the human part of us needs care just as much as the spiritual part of us need care, if we can get that help ourselves, then we can be helpful to others who come to us and say, Pastor, I've been depressed for four weeks and I just can't shake it. Or pastor, I'm using alcohol, drugs to self-medicate with this pain that I'm experiencing. And instead of giving them that can cliche response, we go to them and say, we're going to pray about this. But we're going to also talk to a doctor about this. And the same is true as if somebody came to us with symptoms of any other physical illness, we would entreat them differently than we often do those who have symptoms that affect their um, mental ability to function at times. So I think as pastors, we have to admit we need help first in order to help others. In recent years, there's been a greater openness in our society about mental illness and efforts to address the stigma associated with mental health conditions and their treatments. What can churches and faith leaders do to be a part of these efforts? Um, on Pathways, uh, a shameless plug for Pathways, uh, the promise. <laughs> I, pathways, the promise. I uh, did a webinar on uh, three um, different um, approaches to mental health. And it was medication, it was mediation, and it was meditation. And this three-pronged approach is saying to us as leaders, we should most definitely promote uh, meditation, so spiritual discipline, spiritual practices. But that alone shouldn't be what holds the, the stool up. We also should then say, what about mediation, support groups, ways to mediate what persons are experiencing? And then we shouldn't discourage medication because medication can be something that can support that person 
while they are clinging to the other two things that help bring stability. And so I think that three-pronged approach of meditation, mediation, and medication, those 3M, that 3M approach, is an approach that if we look at that, uh, we don't say things from pulpits like, you know, you don't need that medication. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like telling somebody who is diabetic to stop taking insulin. You know, um, and I often say to people, like, you know, if if we're supposed to be healed and not have any health issues, why do we wear glasses? Why do, why do we use hearing aids? It's because we recognize that there's been a diminishment in sight and we need glasses to see better. Or we recognize there's been a diminishment in hearing, so we need a hearing aid. And so we all diminish in some way and need something to help support us function fully in those areas. So, you know, I think that there's a greater awareness of mental health. I think we're doing a better job in many faith communities, but we can do so much more. And I think that three-pronged approach of saying, don't say it's one or the other, all three may be needed in order to support that person, like that store. If a pastor or um, faith leader is listening to this conversation and is interested in starting a uh, mental health ministry in their congregation, um, where would you recommend they begin? What are some of the steps you would encourage them to consider taking? I would encourage them to um, find others who desire to champion the cause. Uh, pastors are so busy that then they themselves may have a desire to do the work, but when they think about what it would take to make it happen, they just go, oh my goodness, there's another thing on my plate. So if they see a need, find other who can be champions that can support that. And it could be that you form an exploratory committee and you explore what can we do to increase mental health awareness in our congregation? What can we do to reach out to groups like NAMI and Mental Health America, or Powers of Promise or other groups in order for them to help us to education? Um, how do we dedicate a Bible study to mental illness? As we know, May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so for the whole month of May, we're gonna do a Bible study series on just depression, anxiety, and psychosis. And we're gonna use some resources from Pathways to Promise to do that. Or, you know what, I'm gonna dedicate a sermon to just mental health awareness. Or for our prayer, instead of praying for just physical things, we're gonna pray for mental health wellness. So, um, you know, I've mentioned several things. One, finding someone else who can be a champion with you to help support the cause. Um, and then also looking at ways where you can connect to movements like Pathways to Promise that can help support you so that you're not doing it on your own. And if they wanted to, they could go to pathways, the number two promise.org. And on our website, there's a link that says to schedule a meeting with me, just click this link and they can actually schedule an appointment with me. And I've done this for people across the country and just talk them through what next steps can be. In the midst of uh, this coronavirus pandemic, what are particular challenges you see for churches and other faith communities in this area? Yeah, we, one of the biggest things um, that has really uh, been a strain for many congregations is the ability to come together in community physically in worship. And many persons have tried to use technology 
as a way to come together to stream services live, to use different uh, means to connect with people. Um, and I think that uh, what COVID-19 has done has actually magnified the inequalities and the inequities that we have within our society. And it's just magnified them and shined a greater light on, on what we knew existed, but it's just made us very made it brighter. And so I think that uh, for those congregations that are dealing with members that are impoverished and are living in homes where they can't quarantine, there is no extra room. There, there is no space to go there. They have to be together. Um, uh, for dealing with members who don't have any monies and savings. And so a loss of job means that they may be almost homeless or they may be going to be homeless. Um, so once again, that's why when I say that COVID-19 or the coronavirus has just magnified or trying to light on inequities or inequalities, uh, and we're challenged as a church, how do we respond in this time to our uh, community and to our congregations? And so I uh, would encourage persons to use that thing called a telephone and call people, <laughs> you know, just pick the phone up and call people, uh, you know, and um, so I think COVID-19 has really challenged us to how do we be community without face-to-face contact, you know, and we can still be community in, in, that, in that way. Final thoughts, further recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, I would just say, you know, um, after listening to this and, and if you are thinking, you know, what can I do to support those around me? What can I do to, uh, if, if you're a pastor, support my congregation? Um, I would say the first thing that you can do is, is if you have any stigma or any bias about mental health or substance use, uh, be honest, face that, and then reach out to somebody like myself, uh, at Pathways of Promise to say, what do we do next? And uh, Amos said it best, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Um, let's agree to walk together, Pathways of Promise and you, your, your church. And we can start taking down some of those barriers and actually start providing support and, and care for those that you uh, love most. You can read uh, Jermaine's article, uh, his recent article, Five Steps to Create a Mental Health Ministry at ChristianCitizen.us. And I would also encourage you to look for his earlier article, Companionship, a Response to Social Isolation and Loneliness. And you can connect with the work of Pathways to Promise at PathwaysToPromise.org. That's the word pathways followed by the number two, then promise.org. Jermaine, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you to this week's guests, Jessica Young-Brown and Reverend Jermaine Alberti. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy-edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison. Thank you.
The Christian Citizen Editorial Board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagrey, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Sarah Strosel-Kagey, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Peyton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMickle, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, christiancitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Thanks for listening.